sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to your home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share this with one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows by word of mouth. And I have to say, based on the most recent numbers, you all have been mouthy. So I really appreciate it. Now, for the past few weeks, we've been diving into the subject of immigration in the United States, and we've learned a couple of things. The first is that America has always had a greater need for cheap labor than it was able to supply domestically. Number two is that people leaving economic and political instability at home have always come to the United States to fill that gap. And number three, that Americans on the whole have never been happy when those people arrived. And today's immigration debate centers primarily around undocumented immigrants. And many feel that people crossing our border illegally are doing a disservice to those who go through legal channels and others feel the poorest nature of our border leaves too much room for criminals and drugs to make their way into the country. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of this series that immigration was the first subject I covered on YDHTY. And my second guest ever was David, a friend who I knew had come here from Columbia as a child. What I didn't realize until about halfway through that first interview was that he had lived the life of an undocumented immigrant in this country until his late teens. And I invited him back to share his experience living undocumented in this country as a child and his take on the current state of immigration. You might imagine it is an interesting one. The best piece of advice I got during this conversation, don't forget to count. It'll make sense when you get into it. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. The, the first part of your life was in Colombia, and you didn't come to the United States until you were eight, right? That's correct. I was born in Colombia, in Bogota, the capital city of Colombia. And from zero to eight, my entire world was just the city of Bogota and surroundings around the city and, you know, spending time with family. And then there's a point in your childhood, your mom decides to leave Colombia. And when did that happen and, and why? So let's rewind the clock and let's think of the, the shows that you've seen that portray Colombia in the late 80s and early 90s, right? Government mm -hmm. corruption is through an all-time high. There is very little opportunity for, for economic growth. Even to this day, Colombia is a country where if you were born in poverty, it's going to take you about nine generations to get out of poverty. Nine generations. That is your grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren's. Like that's too much. You know? So in this context in the mid-90s, my mom works at a bank and she has a job doing auditing. And she's doing pretty well. She's managing a team of people. And that bank gets acquired I believe it was 97 by a huge Spanish bank. And my mom's job becomes redundant because they decide that they're going to use their consultants at PWC. And just like that, my mom's out of a job. Mm. We also get to the second issue. Like I said, Columbia's going through a really hard time. 
There's no startup economy. It's either you got that job at that nice salary and you kind of do what that is. And if you're beyond the age of 30, good luck because nobody's going to hire you because why would they hire you when they can hire someone who's cheap? If they hire you, that's really expensive. And here, what my mom's looking at 40, again, she had a management job. She was doing pretty well for herself. And now she can't even get interviews because every time she hands off her resume, it turns into, we can't afford you. There's no job here. There's an opportunity here. So my mom's essentially burning out her savings. My mom and my dad separated when I was about three. So my dad's been out of the picture for a while at this point. Yeah. And uh, my mom's trying to figure out what do we do, right? Because again, we're burning through savings and life in Latin America and life in, in general in, in an emerging world, let's call it, is cheap, mm-hmm. but also incredibly expensive because food is mm-hmm. cheap. Getting access to credit, very expensive. So something like a mortgage, it's actually more expensive in a developing nation as it would be in the United States, for example. Things like education, there is no such thing as a public school that's going to yield positive students in Latin America or in Colombia or in Bogota, at least. So if I wanted to have a good education, I couldn't go to public school. There's There's no resources in a public school. So I had to go yeah. to private school and the private school equivalent in US dollars is about $1,000 a month. You know, it's $12,000 a year. On top of that, access to credit, just debt is more expensive. So my mom was burning through savings rather quickly. And then 1999, mm-hmm. I got to that point where she began been jobless for a bit, about two years. And she says to herself, enough's enough. I got some cousins in the US. We're going to move to the US. And yeah, we left August 2nd, 1999 in an airplane to Miami, Florida. And so was her plan to stay or did that happen after she arrived? That's really the fundamental immigrant question because there, in the immigrant community, you'll learn that there's like two types of immigrants. There's the immigrant that's here for a bit looking to generate some kind of wealth and then goes back uh, home, either Mm -hmm. invests it or or builds something up. And then there's immigrants who essentially come to the U.S. and they want to stay. My mom was in the the latter camp because in Colombia, there was really nothing for her, right? Like I'm, I'm her only son. I'm her only child. If she comes to the U.S. with me, why would we go back? What's there to go back to, you know? Imagine the 2008 housing crisis with variable mortgage rates, interest rates on our mortgages. That same thing was happening in Colombia. So her apartment was also at risk. Like all these things were, were going against us. So her original plan was we're going to go to the US and, and we're going to stay there as much as we can and things will settle out as, as time goes on. I want to jump back for a second because you'd mentioned that the economy was unstable and the, and the political environment was unstable. When you were a kid, did you feel that at all? I remember, yeah, I mean, yeah. So back then, so let's start with the political element. So Colombia is interesting because in in the most of Latin American history, right, most Latin American countries tend to be somewhat to the left. Colombia was the only one that was always somewhat to the right and actually Mm -hmm. pretty much to the right. It, It wasn't until this past election six months ago that Colombia elected their first ever leftist government, again, yeah. ever. So we're talking about a very much a country that's to the right. Well, with that political instability, there was an issue with this group of far-left guerrillas and, and different organizations that 
lived on the outskirts of the big cities and started gathering support from smaller towns. But then again, they were also poaching kids to become child soldiers. They were also stealing lands from people, murdering people. So you have that side of violence with the FARC, the ELN, Mm. the M19s. Then you have the paramilitaries that rose up to defend the smaller towns and try to fill the pockets where government wasn't there. So you have a second violent group of people. And then you have the government who's trying to keep it all together. All this motivated by corruption and the underlying economic sales engine, or let's call it capital engine of this industry, of this war, was the drug trade. So you have all these Mm. things that are essentially a race of who can capture the most territory, who can trade the most drugs, and who can buy the most weapons and recruit the most amount of people and soldiers. So it got to the point where me as a kid being, let's call it six, six, seven, and eight, and I have this memory. I don't remember how old I am. I'm either six, seven, or eight. And you have Bogota in about, let's call it four hours outside of the city because you got to go through the mountains. So it's not like a direct straight line, like you're going up the mountain and down the mountain and up the mountain again and down the mountain to get to this other city. And I remember we were there on a three-day weekend and we're leaving that Sunday night Monday was supposed to be back to normal. And all of a sudden we say, oh, we're not leaving tonight. I'm like, what's going on? Me and my cousins with my aunt, my uncle, my mom. And like, yeah, we're not leaving because there's a a skirmish between the guerrillas and the military on the highway. So Mm -hmm. we can't leave. And you can hear the gunshots. And and we stayed. But in the morning, we left at, let's call it 3, 3.30 in the morning because the, the adults had to go to work and the kids had to go to school, somewhat of a school. And I remember like peeking my head up and uh, yeah, Dan, it was just seeing like 40 dead bodies lying on the side of the highway. And these are, let's call it 17 year olds, 18 year olds, 19 year olds. And, and you see yourself, right? You're like, Oh, like this is a reality. Like this, this is the thing that happens. So like, that's what it was like to grow up and, and then, man, I'm talking from a place of privilege, right? Like I'm the one whose mom had access to savings, who had a private school, right? right? Like my heart breaks for those kids who are parts of the the farmer community and and the rural communities where the FARC is coming and saying, hey, you got two good looking boys that look like they can carry some weight. We're going to take them now, okay? And and you're that family of four and what do you say, right? Do you want to be another Mm -hmm. example where they paint these people refuse to FARC on your front door with your blood, right? Like you're not going to do that. You're not going to be that. So you kind of give up. So it, it was a very strange time for, for me to grow up in, in Colombia, but more so it was a strange time for society because behind everything, what you really have is people who are trying to have their bare needs met. Like nobody's waking up to say, today, I feel like being a criminal, right? Nobody, no one's saying, oh, I'm going to wake up to do crime. It's more so like, how can I make it so I can try to propel family forward and the work that I can do is enough, right? Because that's what it felt like to my mom and to anybody who's facing those dire circumstances, like enough's enough. Like I'm working two jobs, I'm working three jobs, I'm, I'm playing the game, I'm supposed to be doing the right things and I'm still not getting anywhere. So what do I do? And that's where usually moving and escaping your circumstances becomes the best course of action. Uh, this is kind of off topic. I have to ask this no, question. Given that you've you, you spent your childhood in this environment when you see things going on, like the war in Ukraine, for example, or like the civil war in Syria, do, do you have a certain, like a different sense of empathy? I, I think what's terrible about today's world is 
horrible news events have become entertainment and because we're become so like hyper tribalized on the internet right it, it becomes mm-hmm. like you you root on the fact that this one enemy soldier was hiding in a pit and they dropped a grenade on them anyway or or you hear a lot with like school shootings right it's like this blank number of students and then and, and you kind of just look at the number and, and the number detaches itself from what that tangibly means to people and i think one growing up the way I did or faced with the circumstances that I did early on, it taught me to count, right? So when I hear 17 kids, I count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, so on and so forth. And like, that's a person. I think it's so easy to like see the number and let that number be that number, but you have yeah. to count it because otherwise it's just, you're desensitized. And I think part of me needs to feel right. Like when I see these things happening in Ukraine, and I'm seeing kids putting together Molotov cocktails. Like, you have to recognize that that's a childhood that's stolen. That is a child who will grow up with memories that hopefully no other child has to ever live through. And mm-hmm. you can't just trivialize it. You have to recognize the fact that there's a person there. I think it's so easy to just be entertained or fall into autopilot that you forget to really feel. And I think mm. when you've grown up in circumstances like what I have, feeling is a little easier, you know? No, I, I hear that. I hear that. So, so you're, you, you're brought to the U.S., you stay in the U.S. Your mom's come from fairly, like you said, fairly privileged position. She's a manager at a bank. What are her opportunities in, in the United States? So this is interesting because this is all pre-9-11. Everything fundamentally mm-hmm. changed post 9-11. But pre-9-11, yeah. it actually got to the point where if you had enough cash, you could go to the Social Security Administration and say, hey, I want to open up an LLC. And as part of that, you could sponsor yourself. And it was like a 10 grand process. And there you go. You have a Social Security now, right? So think life prior to 9-11 was very pro, or not pro immigrant, but pro if you have the power to become an immigrant and if you have the money to become an immigrant, then you can become an immigrant. That's kind yeah. of how the system was set up, especially in, in ports of entry. So I'm yeah. talking about Miami, for example, in Florida. You could very well get a license with a tourist visa in the United States pre-9-11. You could do that. So we come to the U.S. and into that world, and my mom knows that we don't have our quote-unquote residency papers. Right? We don't, we're going to be on document. We're going to be illegal. So that means no social security, which means she, if God forbid I get sick or she gets sick, expect absolutely no support or help from anyone. Imagine that something happens to her and I have to fend for herself. I'm getting absolutely no government support. So like we're, we're looking at it as, hey, this is the world pre-9-11. We're going to go there. We're going <laughs> to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps type of thing. And, and we're going to chase that dream, but expect no help from anybody because you know, you're not going to get food stamps unless you have a social security. You're not going to get rent control assistance unless you have a social security. You're not going to get any housing aid unless you have, or section eight housing, unless you have that social security number. So it was kind of like, we're on our own. We'll be okay. Post 9-11, it very much turned into a world of fear. So Ina started rounding up immigrants, right? Like you would hear, hey, somebody was trying to get a driver's license with a tourist visa, and then the police were called on that person. So all of a sudden, being an immigrant in the States went from something that, yeah, like just give it time and go back home or you'll figure it out as time goes on, to, oh, like you got to learn how to hide. You got to learn how to hide in plain sight. 
you got to learn how to find, you know, support in case one of you is, is arrested or, or God forbid, like you're in a position where you're going to get deported. You start hearing of families being separated where the kid was in school and they came to pick up parents while the kid was in school. So, so a lot of that happened. So my mom's options went from, I'm a professional who needs to sharpen her English to, I am going to clean houses from here on out, period. And that's mm. the mentality she had. Like before all that shifted, it was okay. We'll be there for years. I'll probably clean some houses. I'll, I'll get my, my English set up. I'll, I'll go to school. I'll, I'll get that going. And then once we have our papers, everything will shift. And then just turned into how can we fend for ourselves, clean houses, and try to create some kind of coach savings. And hopefully I have a better opportunity at, at life than she did. It sounds like in a way there was a legal path for your mom, or let's call it semi-legal, whatever you want to call it. There, there was a way to buy your, your place into a line. Like there used to be yeah. a world where that was a possibility. And, and your mom's plan was really, she was going to clean houses or do what she needed to do to sharpen her English, then go work for a bank. That doesn't happen. And so she ends up cleaning houses and that's what she does throughout your childhood, correct? Yeah, that's what she did. She cleaned houses, office buildings. And her original plan was, again, sharpen that English. Because it used to be, the immigrant story used to be, if you're in the U.S. and you speak English, you'll still have opportunities. Just learn English. Yeah. And that started to dwindle away when the immigrant community went from, we're a part of the U.S., we're just the immigrant part of the U.S., to we are now in the shadows living in fear. When you were a kid, were you ever conscious of this status? And what was that like? It would have been either seventh or eighth grade when in middle school, if you took French as your language requirement, they were going to go to Quebec or Montreal. And they were going to do mm -hmm. a big school trip. And I couldn't go because, you know, I didn't have social security, so I would not be able to leave the country and come back. Yeah. I think that's the first time. The second time as growing up that it became very evident to me was when I got to high school and I got a job doing tele-interviewing, opinion, public opinion research, you know, cold calling people. This is around like 2007 to ask them about their yeah. thoughts on the election. And they were paying bilingual speakers $16 an hour. And okay. I had like three days and I did really well those three days. And then my fourth day, I got called into HR because they had a problem processing my ITIN number. And yeah. I was essentially fired that day. <laughs> that was the second oh. time that like, it really like smacked me in the face. The third time it really smacked me in the face was, and this is again, I owe this to my, a lot to my mom because she hustled her tail off and she was able to afford a two bedroom apartment in this part of New Jersey where it's a public school, but it's a private school education, but it's a public school. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the school, because it had good connections and means, they were doing a trip to Washington, D.C. to see how Congress worked and to see all these really cool things. And you needed a security clearance. And to get a security clearance, you need a social security number. So yeah, I, I was definitely aware of this growing up. I was always yeah. very careful, especially like once you start going to parties and you start seeing people like, drinking whatever, I was like, oh, I, I better isolate because, you know, if I have a run with the police, I'm screwed. And so, like, there was always, like, an additional sense of fear that I, that I carried with me wherever I went. Like, oh, I'm home alone. I better not make a noise 
because if I make a noise, what if the neighbor calls and, and now I'm going to be met with the police. And if I was ever in trouble, I was like, don't call the police because they're going to like get you. So there was always a lot of fear that you grew up with. And again, it's all about how quickly can you learn to either blend in or how quickly can you learn to just kind of stay in the shadow because the nail that sticks out is the one that gets the hammer. But if you're hidden, everything should be okay. So, you know, there's something I want to jump back to, which is you'd, you'd mentioned an, an ITIN number. And am I correct? Do most undocumented immigrants have some sort of social security number and, and pay into the system? So you can pay into the, so to, when you have a social security number, you're, you're eligible for benefits. But most immigrants who choose, and I'm, I'm going to put that word most in like quotations with an asterisk, because how am I going to prove that one way or another? You know? But I can tell you from my experience and from when I saw those around me. So yeah. everybody knows that if you're looking to one day get legitimized in the United States to actually have your papers, there's going to be a, a debt to pay to Uncle, Uncle Sam. You know, there's, there's going to be something that the IRS says, well, you've been here, so what'd you do with that tax money? And if your long-term goal is to stay in the United States, you're better off getting something called an ITIN number. I believe it stands for Individual Tax Identification Number, but it essentially grants you a nine-digit number where that you can use to pay taxes to the government. You're still not eligible for any any kind of meaningful or any tax return. You're not eligible to let's call it for entitlements like again Medicare or Medicaid, sorry, Medicaid or food stamps or Section 8 housing. You're not eligible for any of that, but you're saying, hey, I'm doing my part because I'm planting the seed. So in the future I can hopefully enjoy the shadow of the tree, you know? And actually that's the number that I used. When I applied for that job that I got fired for, I was using an ITIN number, not a social security number. So when you filled out the paperwork, the numbers matched up, but when they run into the system, it doesn't match up. Well, part of the reason I wanted to ask this question is because I know one of the big issues that a lot of immigration hawks have is the idea that undocumented immigrants come here and they take more from the system than they put in. Mm-hmm. And the thing I want to make clear is that Throughout this period, your mom's paying taxes on whatever she's making, correct? Yeah, she's paying tax income taxes. That's what the item number is for. Is hey, I get paid in cash, and this is my way of representing that. But I think people get so fixated an idea of of how do these people pay their taxes? There's so many ways to pay your taxes. You pay a sales tax, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it, like any type of sales tax. If you're on the highways and you're Dealing with Easy Pass, you're paying a tax. I think that my biggest challenge with that point of view is that it's punitive. It's looking for a punishment, not a solution. We're not going to get mm. anywhere if we're looking to cut our nose to spite our face. You know, the, the reality yeah. is folks are here because they want to contribute, because they want to build a better life. We do mm. nothing by trying to put all these barriers in front of them when we should just be making it easier for them to become legitimate and to get out of the shadows and yeah, contribute in a more formal income tax, if you will. Um, yeah. But yeah. How'd you guys ultimately end up getting citizenship anyway? I always think life is, is funny the way that works out. So when I was a freshman in high school, this is back in the days of AIM America online instant messaging. Yeah. And I was aiming or talking to a friend of mine and I just asked her, hey, what are you up to? And she goes, oh, I'm helping my family friend with his dating profile. And I was like, oh, my mom's single. So my mom met her family friend. They got married my junior year of, of high school. When they got married, my stepfather 
filed for us to have our papers. And with a year and a half to go, it left in my high school career, my life trajectory just immediately changed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So life is, yeah. is curious how it works out. You, you and I met at work. You and I work in tech, which has been a, a pretty good sector over the last 20 years or so. Let's just say your, your mom hadn't met your stepdad, never got married, never got legal citizenship. What, what would you be doing right now? That's, a, that's an excellent question. I think the, the piece that gets me the most is the fear I'd be living with. But I, I would probably work in hardscape or construction, I think yeah. I think those are probably the best ways to earn income as an as a male immigrant if you can put your body into labor type of thing. Like you can you can lift heavy, you know. So I'd probably be working either hardscaping or construction. And and this is what's incredible to me about the life switch by just having nine nine numbers associated to your name. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. I, I went from a life of fear with no hope to build wealth for me or my family down the long term uh, mm. with a mom who didn't have a, a plan for retirement. So that would have been my responsibility. Somehow I would have had to put it together to fast forward. I have a college degree. I was able to start a scholarship at the university that I attended. I have a great job in tech that I love that I find incredibly rewarding that has allowed me to create generational wealth for me and my family where that's actually paying off for my mom's retirement. Yeah. I have, um, I like to think I'm a responsible member of, of the community that I live in. And you know, all, all it took was, was nine digits. And, and it's crazy to me because yeah. I think back and there's a little bit of like a survivor's guilt that will always probably live with me. But I look back to kids that I grew up with that in my opinion are smarter than me, more hardworking than me. And life has not been fair or as, or as much of a blessing as it has for me. And, and it's a shame. You know, on, a, on like a larger scale, what impact does this have on the immigrant community? The fact that people feel the need to hide in the shadows and the fact that people have to be very careful with who finds out about their status and, and where. I think on a mental health level, you're consistently under fear. Consistently, right? Because it's, yeah, it's you can't like you can't really sleep well at night, and every time that you come across the police on the highway, like your heart will do that. My little little skipping of the beat, and I I just to be scared all the time is not good for a person. Like it just isn't. Mm. Like you see this with divorce rates in the immigrant community. You see this with kids who are children of immigrants who don't do well in school because they don't really have a home life. It's not good mm. to grow up in those types of environments. It just isn't. And, and yeah. again, when you, when you live in a place of fear, you're not going to be your best self. So that's the first yeah. thing you face. The second thing you face is the informal economy creates more disadvantages than it creates advantages, right? Like the informal economy is solved for today and like burn the candle at both ends, but don't worry about like that other end because you, you might not even live to get to that other end. You know, like that's what the informal yeah. economy creates. That's when you get in perpetual cycles of the payday loan sharks, right? Like you, you get into all these vicious cycles because you're just looking to survive today. So when you're a part of the informal community, you don't have a way to represent yourself. So if you have a boss who's exploiting you, good luck. If you have someone who's sexually har har harassing you or, or taking advantage of you or assaulting you, who, who are you going to tell? Right. So 
rather than creating a solution to a problem, which is like, people are like, well, you know, I heard once regarding the license question, I heard someone say, well, what do you want to do next? You want to have a drunk driving lane in the highway? Like what a stupid retort. Like what a stupid, right? Like we're, they're not yeah. apples and apples. Come on, man. Right. But like yeah. the, the general feels like, well, I'm not going to reward crime. It's like, hold on. I'm not saying reward crime. I'm saying create an environment where people are not vulnerable because when people are vulnerable, someone will take advantage of them. This actually happened to me and my mom. Like we once bought a car from this member of the church community and because the guy was a mechanic he's like i'll give you a good deal on it the guy knows my mom's undocumented he takes the title back says oh i just got to do some extra few things on it my mom doesn't have a driver's license she doesn't have insurance on the card the guy just said pay me for the car she gave up three grand we had just gone to the u.s too so it's not like we had money to spare and then he just stole the car back he took the title never gave my mom the money back or anything and who can she go to for help right you create opportunities for like excuse me, my language here for bastards like that to come and like have their, their way. And it's, it's not good to keep people hidden. Now, when you do introduce a way for people to tap into the formal economy, you're creating a, a way to regulate behavior, right? If I'm a documented immigrant, I'm going to be extra careful to drive on the highway because I don't want any police, but God forbid I do get pulled over or whatever. I am now accountable for my actions accountability is always a good thing. No matter which way mm. you slice or dice it, when someone's accountable for their actions, that is always a good thing. And that's what you do when you give folks who are undocumented access to driver's licenses. It's worked out incredibly well in Maryland. It's worked out incredibly well in New York. Right? Like, these are things that are just good ideas for society. Not to say we're rewarding whatever behavior, but to say, I want you to be accountable. That's a good thing. And, and at the risk of editorializing, I, I think what I hear in this is that if you decide to create an environment where undocumented immigrants have to continue to go underground, other crimes automatically start popping up around that, whether yeah. it's fraud, whether it's exploitation and so on. Is that what I'm hearing there? A thousand percent, Dan. The amount of people who will take advantage of you because they know that you won't come back to them with a lawyer to get your wages, right? Or the amount of people who will pretend to be immigration attorneys and will defend you and just take your money and go. Or even if we're talking about, this is getting away from the driver's license issue, but more so how we people just kind of cross the border. But the the fact that some people are willing to be human trafficked in order to get to the US, think about the type of person who is the human trafficker. You open up the economy for those people. You create a market for the cartels when you try to shade or hide or, or keep something down. It's not good. This next question is going to seem really callous, but in case there's anybody who is listening to this and thinking to themselves, well, it's dangerous, yes, but they shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. What's your retort to that? Desperate people have been known to render desperate deeds. I think anybody who can look at themselves in the mirror and say, well, they shouldn't be doing that anyway, has never really known what it's like to be desperate. I think if you remove the label of undocumented immigrant or illegal immigrant, you remove that and you kind of face people with circumstances, all people of all backgrounds would say a thousand percent, I would do what it takes to take my family further, right? You have so many proud parents that would say, I would do anything for my kids. Yeah, really anything? 
think about the weight of that word anything because mm-hmm. that's that anything of that woman who's trying to go from Honduras to the United States with a kid in her back trying to jump on a freight train because it's the only way that she gets to avoid the cartels. That's what it means to do anything for your kids. So like th- th- that's my answer to that. Through this series, the thing I've become keenly aware of is that what we call a crisis at the border is really truly a humanitarian crisis. It's, you know, kind of getting back to your mom's story. It's really a bunch of people like your mom who are fleeing a desperate situation and just trying to find a place where they can be safe, where their kids can be safe, where they can survive. And I don't think there's any wall high enough that's going to keep people from crossing into the wealthiest nation in the world to find that. And, you know, you've lived this experience. Obviously there has to be some sort of regulation over who comes and goes within this country. Is there any way you think it could be done where the U S is still able to monitor who comes in and out, but without people living in fear? So, so I'll start with this. And I actually got this from one of your guests, Christoph, Christopher L. Brown, when he was talking about the oh, yeah. Yeah, and the importance of national image when it came to, to ending slavery. So I'm going to substitute slavery for immigration. But I think the way he framed it was, the question of immigration has shifted into judging the character of the opposing side and destroying the reputation of the opponent. So then immigration is a standard by which to measure political stance. And that resonates so much to me because when you look at our lawmakers today, they're not trying to identify the problem pragmatically and think through the scientific method on what is our hypothesis, what is an experiment, where can we put in some control? They're not trying to do that. They're trying to say, hey, this is, I am defined but what, by what I am not. And I am not open to any kind of immigration changes unless there's punishment first and punishment second, and punishment third. But that's such mm-hmm. a flawed way to think because that's, that's the reason why the DREAM Act didn't pass. Like if we're talking about solutions, in 2010, the DREAM Act was three votes away from being able to pass. Mm-hmm. The DREAM Act would have given the pathway to legal citizenship to 12 million undocumented students. That's incredible to me. But the biggest qualm with it was that it felt like they were cutting in line because there must be punishment first. So unless that view of we got to punish our own changes, I don't see a way to reconcile. Because again, we're not talking about numbers. We're talking about people. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, Please consider leaving it a review, as I mentioned before, and always mention this podcast grows by word of mouth. For additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the week, sign up for YDHTY's email newsletter at ydhty.com news. Now, at the beginning of this series, I asked you to ask yourself whether our immigration policies reflected American values. Now, David's mom found herself in a position many Americans have found themselves in, laid off from a job with a kid to feed. And the difference 
is that David's mom was also dealing with economic instability at home and political violence and was running out of ways to feed her kid. And her story isn't unlike those of the women we heard about in the first episode in this series with Karina. These are people who've run out of options at home and are willing to roll the dice to find safety in the United States. And to date, we've handled this as a law enforcement issue and created an environment where desperate people put their money and their lives in the hands of cartels and human traffickers to find safety. Now, we used to throw hungry people in jail for stealing food and how we're handling immigration right now doesn't seem that much different. And with climate change continuing to destabilize much of the developing world, we can only expect more people to come to the US seeking safety and a better life. And the big question is, who do we want to be in that story? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. So pop me an email at heydan, that is H-E-Y-D-A-N at Y-D-H-T-Y, Dot com. As always, music courtesy of Qualitac, YDHTY's director of continuous improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.